Well, good morning, UBC. Uh, it is a blessing to be back with you all. I mean, I have been cherishing this moment to be able to come back here, to get to preach God's word, and just to get to spend time with you all, to see your lovely faces, uh, which was a blessing for us to be able to, to walk in and see so many of you. So it's a blessing uh, to be back here with you this morning. I send greetings and love from Ozark Baptist Church in Bentonville. We are extremely grateful to God for you all uh, in so many ways, whether that's just through pastoral staff just coming up and preaching to us regularly throughout the year, even just through your prayers for us uh, that I receive, even just in text this week from so many of you, but even just throughout the year, you're regularly praying for us, and we are extremely grateful to God for you. We praise God for you. For those of you that are new, I know there are a lot of new folks that are here. Uh, For those of you that are new, I used to serve on pastoral staff at UBC about a year ago. They sent us and some other members of UBC out to plant Ozark Baptist Church up in Bentonville. Uh, And by God's grace, we are growing, we are thriving spiritually and numerically, and God has been extremely kind uh, to us in this past year. And it has just flown by. It's It's hard to even fathom that it's even been a year since we planted, but God has been kind, he's been gracious, and he's been good through it all. And so we give praise to God for you in your partnership in the gospel. And so I'm excited to get to spend time in God's word. If you would, open with me to Acts chapter 15. Acts chapter 15. We're going to be looking at verses 36 to chapter 16, verse 10. Acts 15, verses 36 to chapter 16, verse 10. If you're new to the Bible, the book of Acts comes right after the New Testament Gospels of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And the book of Acts is really that second volume to Luke's first work, his gospel. And its location after the gospels is fitting because it takes us from life with Jesus on earth to life after Jesus on earth. It serves as a bridge between the gospels and the letters of the New Testament. It serves as the next stage in Christian history. And so after Jesus rose and ascended into heaven, his work did not end, but instead it continued through the church. And he gave the church a mission to make disciples of all nations. And as the gospel advances to the ends of the earth, to the ends of the earth, there are churches that are popping up all throughout the Mediterranean world. And our passage today is sandwiched between Paul's first missionary journey and his second missionary journey. And that's one of the reasons why I love this text. Because it is sandwiched between high action-packed, high-octane events that are going on in the life of the church surrounding it. If you look at Acts 15, you've got the Jerusalem Council, which is very significant in the book of Acts, and then right after it you get to Philippi, where you see three important conversions as that church is planted in Philippi. But much like a hole-in-the-wall restaurant, right, that's not known for its great location, It's beautiful drapes and it's mid-mod vibe, right? We think about Pesto Cafe in Fayetteville. It's not well known for being located in the chief motel. Many of you that are new to Fayetteville, you don't know where the chief motel is. Don't act like you do. But the reason why you know about Pesto Cafe is because its food is that good. What seems utterly significant And the landscape of restaurants is just a hidden gem that is waiting to be found. Our text is a hidden gem. 
And the Lord has much to teach us about this little transitional text from the first missionary journey to the second missionary journey. In Acts 15, the leaders of the early church gather in Jerusalem and they declare something very important. They declare that Gentiles are full participants in God's family by grace alone, through faith in Jesus alone. And now after some time has passed, Paul is wanting to deliver this good news, to deliver this decision of the church to these churches that he and Barnabas had planted on their first missionary journey. And yet in the context of such great theological unity in Acts 15 comes disagreement and a potential distraction that could upend the mission. So how are God's people going to respond to these obstacles? How does that relate to us today? Whether that be OBC or whether that be UBC. How does it relate to the church today? Well, let's read Acts 15, verses 36 to chapter 16, verse 10. And after some days, Paul said to Barnabas, Let us return and visit the brothers in every city where we proclaimed the word of the Lord and see how they are. Now Barnabas wanted to take with them John called Mark, But Paul thought it best not to take with them one who had withdrawn from them in Pamphylia and had not gone with them to the work. And there arose a sharp disagreement, so that they separated from each other. Barnabas took Mark with him and sailed away to Cyprus. But Paul chose Silas and departed, having been commended by the brothers to the grace of the Lord. And he went through Syria and Cilicia, strengthening the churches." Paul came also to Derbe and to Lystra. A disciple was there named Timothy, the son of a Jewish woman who was a believer, but his father was a Greek. He was well spoken of by the brothers at Lystra and Iconium. Paul wanted Timothy to accompany him, and he took him and circumcised him because of the Jews who were in those places, for they all knew that his father was a Greek. As they went on their way through the cities, they delivered to them for observance the decisions that had been reached by the apostles and elders who were in Jerusalem. So the churches were strengthened in the faith, and they increased in numbers daily. And they went through the region of Phrygia and Galatia, having been forbidden by the Holy Spirit to speak the word in Asia. And when they had come up to Mycenae, they attempted to go into Bithynia, but the Spirit of Jesus did not allow them. So, passing by Mycenae, they went down to Troas, and a vision appeared to Paul in the night. A man of Macedonia was standing there, urging him and saying, come over to Macedonia and help us. And when Paul had seen the vision, immediately we sought to go on into Macedonia, concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel to them. Well, if you're going to get a main idea of this text, I think it would be this. I think this is what Luke is seeking to communicate to us as far as the main idea. That those setbacks threaten to disrupt our mission, God determines its direction. Those setbacks threaten to disrupt our mission, God determines its direction. I think that's the main idea that Luke is getting at. And in each of these three sections that we just worked through, each of these, we're going to learn how the church is to respond when various threats 
arise. We're going to learn how to respond. In point number one, we're going to see that we need to persevere despite disagreement. We see that in chapter 15, verses 36 to 41, to persevere despite disagreement. In chapter two, or sorry, in, in point two, we learn that we're to adapt to potential distractions. We see that in chapter 16 and verses one to five, to adapt to potential distractions. And then in point three, we're gonna be reminded to trust in God's direction, which we see in verses six to 10 of chapter 16, to trust in God's direction. So let's look at point number one together. Persevere despite disagreement. Well, the last time that we see Paul and Barnabas, they're still with the church in Antioch, teaching and preaching the word of God to God's people, as you can see there in verse 35 of chapter 15. But after being in Antioch for a while, Paul tells Barnabas that he wants to do a spiritual checkup to gauge the health of these churches that they had planted on their first missionary journey. And as they're making plans for this trip, they consider who they want to bring along with them. And in verse 37, we read that it says that Barnabas wanted to bring John, also called Mark. Now Paul tells us in Colossians 4, chapter, or chapter 4, verse 10, that Barnabas and Mark are cousins. They're cousins. The last time that Mark appeared was back in Acts chapter 13, verse 13 when they're on their first missionary journey. And we're told that Paul and his companions had left Cyprus and set sail for Pamphylia, but John Mark was not with them. Instead, John Mark decided to go back to Jerusalem. Now, at this point, the story just kind of moves on. We're not really told why John Mark left them until we come to verse 38 in our text. And Luke tells us that Mark actually deserted them. That word withdrawn is really deserted. That Mark had deserted them in Pamphylia instead of persevering in the work. Now we're not told why Mark deserted them. right? Maybe he got homesick. Maybe he was just intimidated by seeing Paul getting stoned for preaching the gospel. We're not told why. right? After all, these are not your average sightseeing mission trips that are trying to gain a heart for the nations. right? That's not what these are. These are knock-down, drag-out, life-threatening journeys to the ends of the earth. And rather than remain in the mission, Mark decided to retreat. And because of this, Paul insisted that he not join them on this trip. For Paul, these trips were not for the faint of heart. But for Barnabas, if you remember his name, what it means, the son of encouragement, this was a second chance for his cousin. And Luke tells us in verse 39 that they had such a sharp disagreement that they had separated from each other. Now to you and I, this may not seem like much of a sharp disagreement, right? But the word that is used right there for sharp disagreement speaks to there possibly being shouting involved. Shouting at one another. And what's remarkable and so tragic in all of this is that this is happening to two apostles. These are two apostles, men who had known each other and been in the work for up to 12 years at this point, who were companions in the most difficult days of their lives. Barnabas had just seen Paul getting stoned at Lystra in chapter 14. 
but maybe you can relate to them. You've had deep relationships where disagreement resulted in division. Words were said that you couldn't take back. No matter how hard you tried, reconciliation just seemed impossible with that person. And any attempt at resolution, it only just made things worse for that relationship. And with this impasse, we are left with the pain of an absent relationship that we once cherished with that brother or sister in Christ. We see this in the church as well. We see it in the church. People can't agree on an issue. Heated emails are sent. Accusations fly. Any attempt to reconcile by way of Matthew 18 is met with stonewalling. So what happens when you face an impasse in your relationships with your brothers and sisters in Christ in this room? What happens when you face an impasse in your relationships where you followed Matthew 18 with another believer, but there just still is not a resolution and an agreement that is made? If this can happen to two apostles, this can happen to any one of us in this room. And we need to be reminded of that. So how do you move forward when it does? I think there are a couple of lessons that we can learn from Paul and Barnabas here. If you want to go into greater depth in learning about more about forgiveness and reconciliation, Chris Bronze's book, Unpacking Forgiveness, is the best that I've read. It's wonderful. So I highly recommend that to you. He covers some of these things in just greater depth. But a couple of lessons that I think that we can learn from Paul and Barnabas. Number one, recognize that impasses happen. Recognize that impasses happen. It's remarkable that Luke does not sugarcoat the early church. I mean, he is showing her warts and all. To paint a perfect picture, actually, I think would defeat the purpose of the narrative. If the mission always went well, then how is the church in other eras, how are they going to be able to navigate those same kinds of trials? It's going to be quite discouraging if all you have is a perfect picture of the early church. But no, Luke gives us her warts and all. Luke's goal right here is not to show us the greatness of the apostles. Instead, it's to show us the grace of our great God. That's what he's doing. Impasses happen because we live in a fallen, sinful world. And if it can happen to two apostles, then it's going to happen to us. It can happen to us. It's been said that the church and the word moved forward not because of people, but in spite of them. That's humbling. It's also a reminder that we are utterly reliant upon God for this mission. The second thing that we learn Second lesson is to acknowledge pre-existing history. Acknowledge pre-existing history. This disagreement did not just arise out of nowhere. They didn't just start shouting at each other for no reason, right? We know that it came from Mark, yes, but that didn't just arise out of nowhere. Often irreconcilable differences, right? There is a pre-existing history that comes with them. The issue with Mark was the nail in the coffin, but there were probably other reasons for why it got to that point. So consider a few of these. I'm not saying that any one of these was necessarily it. But think about the background of this relationship between Paul and Barnabas. The past 18 months 
saw them involved in heated debates in Jerusalem over whether circumcision was required to be a full member of the family of God. Those were heated debates. Further back than that, in Galatians 2, which we just read a moment ago, who was it that Paul just called out for hypocrisy toward the Gentiles? Sure, we remember Peter, but who else did it lead astray? Barnabas as well. Not only that, but who was it that stuck up for Paul before the church in Acts 9? Barnabas stuck up for Paul in Acts 9. And might Barnabas had a, might he be affected by the fact that Paul, who once persecuted the church, is somehow saying no to his cousin for deserting them in Pamphylia? I mean, come on, Paul. Can't you give the guy a second chance? I mean, look at your history. We can begin to see how these things bubble up. We can see how they bubble up. And so if you're dealing with an impasse, recognize that there are probably other factors at play. What might be some of those factors? It could be family ties, unmet hopes and expectations, previous conflicts, all just further complicating matters in that relationship. Recognizing these things helps us to sympathize with those that we are in that impasse with. It helps us to sympathize. Third thing, speak less and assume the best. Speak less and assume the best. Proverbs 26, verse 20 says, Without wood, fire goes down. Without a gossip, conflict dies down. Gossip is wood to the fire of conflict. When impasses happen, we're going to be tempted to want to present our side favorably. We're going to be tempted to justify gossiping. And yet, aside from the small group that's helping you work through that issue, you need to keep your words at a minimum so that that fire will die down in that conflict, in that relationship. We need to speak less, and we need to assume the best more often. Fourthly, Wait upon the Lord. Wait upon the Lord when you're at an impasse in your relationship. In God's kindness, this is not the last time that we actually hear of Paul and Barnabas in Mark. At the end of Paul's second letter to Timothy, as he gives Timothy his final greetings, he tells Timothy this, Get Mark and bring him with you, for he is very useful to me for ministry. That's remarkable. In Paul's first letter to the church in Corinth, he speaks fondly of Barnabas. It's been said that God often will use time to heal wounds that reason and emotions cannot. God will often use time to heal wounds that reason and emotions cannot. Often we don't think time is a mercy of God, but it is. When a resolution does not come quickly, God may actually give you the mercy of time in your relationship with that other brother or sister. With time comes space to be able to let your emotions cool, to allow for you to grow in godliness, for allow for you to process the situation to a greater degree. God may very well give you his mercy by the gift of time. Now, our resolution 
It may not come in a day. It may not come in a week. It may not come in a year. In fact, it may not come at all. But in the meantime, we wait, on, we wait upon the Lord as we pray for humility to better understand the situation and to grow in godliness, praying and hoping that God would bring a resolution in that relationship. And as we wait and as we pray, well, what do we do? We don't remain stationary, but we've got to persevere. We've got to continue, which is the fifth thing. It's the final thing that I want us to see. Persevere in the work. Persevere in the work. What's interesting in this text is that Luke's point is not to place blame on Paul or Barnabas. Instead, his point is to highlight their perseverance in the mission despite their disagreement. Right? Luke is not just going off on these guys in the next couple of verses. No, he wants us to see their perseverance despite their disagreement. Look at verses 39 to 41. Notice what we do not read right there. <laughs> Look at what we don't read. We do not read, and the mission was abandoned. That's not what happens. Paul and Barnabas came to a compromise. Rather than quitting, Barnabas takes Mark and he sails for Cyprus. Paul chooses Silas. He travels through Syria and Cilicia. And did you notice the result of persevering and continuing in the work by compromising with one another in verse 41. Look at verse 41. What is the result of coming to that compromise with one another? Churches are strengthened. Their disagreement did not forfeit the work, but it was used by God to multiply the work. From one work comes two works, and churches are strengthened all throughout the Mediterranean world. Friends, setbacks are inevitable in the mission of the church, but they're not insurmountable to God. And we have to remember that. In fact, setbacks are often a means through which God accomplishes his purposes. And yet, sadly, maybe you resonate with many today who experience pain from past church hurt. Right? In a room this size, inevitably, there are going to be some of you that are coming in here with past church hurt. Maybe you feel like throwing in the towel on the church. Maybe you feel like throwing the towel in on the faith. But what do you do whenever you feel like you cannot continue? What do you do in that moment? We have a word from Hebrews chapter 12, verse 3. You consider Jesus who endured such hostility from sinners against himself. Why? so that you won't grow weary and give up. We continue on the mission by considering our Messiah. That's how you persevere. His endurance on the cross is the basis for our own in the mission. It's his endurance. And just as he endured the cross for the joy that was set before him, so do we. We persevere despite disagreements because on that day when Jesus returns, all finger pointing at one another is going to be laid to rest. Why? Because your finger is going to be up in the sky declaring at Christ's return when he returns in glory. Worthy is the lamb who is slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. Brothers and sisters, on that day, you're not going to be obsessing about that disagreement 
with your brother or sister. You're not going to be obsessing about who was right or who was wrong. Why? Because when Jesus comes back, he makes all things right. So let the consummation of all things put your present conflict into perspective. Let the consummation of all things put your present conflict into perspective. So friends, where are your eyes? Are they fixed on your hurt? Are they fixed upon your pain? Don't want to mitigate that. But are they staying there? Or are they fixed upon the helper in your pain who endured the cross so that you would not grow weary and give up, as Hebrews 12 says. Well, though disagreements can happen, we persevere in the mission, and as we do, we need to adapt to potential distractions. We've got to adapt to potential distractions. Point number two, we're looking at chapter 16, verses 1 to 5, adapt to potential distractions. As Paul visits the churches planted throughout the region of Galatia, he returns to the backwater towns of Derby and Lystra, and he finds a disciple named Timothy. Now, we learn a couple of things about Timothy from verses 1 and 2. Timothy was not from a city of importance. In Acts 14, both Derby and Lystra were mountain towns whose native tongue was Lyconian, not Greek. Not only that, but Timothy wasn't a pure-breed Jew. If you remember, his mother was a believer. She was Jewish. His father was a Greek. More than likely, Timothy came to faith through his mother who heard the gospel from Paul. And as Timothy grew in his faith, it became well-known throughout the region. And people began to speak highly of him. And what's important to notice is that Timothy's pedigree was not impressive. It was not impressive. He was a half-breed from an insignificant backwater town. It was not like Paul's pedigree. Hebrew of Hebrews, right? A Roman citizen from Tarsus. And yet God used them both mightily. He used them both mightily. Timothy was a spiritual son to Paul. He had a front row seat to his ministry, to his suffering. And it's a reminder that God uses people from all backgrounds to advance the gospel. That pedigree does not hinder the mission. He's using Paul and Timothy. Another thing to notice is that Paul always took people with him. He always took people with him. He's always looking for people to join him in the work. He's strategically placing people throughout the empire, planting churches, placing them in churches throughout the empire in order to strengthen those churches. In the last paragraph, who was it? It was Silas. This paragraph, who is it? Timothy. Next paragraph, who joins him? Luke, the author of the, of the book. Paul was always adding people to the work so that they could multiply the work throughout the Mediterranean world. One man is not going to reach the nations. And it's the same for UBC. One church is not going to reach the nations. But you can multiply your work by raising up people from within and sending them out to go to help reach the nations. And praise God. Because, brothers and sisters, that's what you've been doing. That's what you've been doing, right? Our church is grateful that you are not an insular church. 
The nations are not going to be reached by insular churches who just kind of keep everybody here. But no, they're going to be reached by people sending out, churches sending out people to go and to reach other places throughout the world. And praise God, that's how we came into existence. We praise God for you, that you're being faithful in that, that you're not an insular church. You're seeking to raise up brothers and sisters from within in order to send them out to be able to reach people at far-flung places throughout the world. Continue to do that. Continue to do that. That's what faithfulness to the mission looks like. And it's going to come at great sacrifices. There are going to be some of you that are going to uproot your life. And you're going to have to go. And you're going to need to move in order to take the gospel to the ends of the earth. In order to take the gospel to more needy areas throughout this country. And so consider that. That's what it looks like to be faithful. And yet as Paul adds Timothy to his team, a potential distraction arises. A potential distraction arises. Because the Jews in that area knew Timothy's mother was Jewish and his father was a Greek. Paul decided to circumcise him. You see that there in verse 3. Now this may seem a little odd. I mean, especially the placing of this seems quite odd. Right? Because back in chapter 15, the who's who of Christianity met in Jerusalem to declare once and for all that circumcision is not required for salvation. Yet, Paul decides to circumcise Timothy. Or take our scripture reading from Galatians 2, for example. Paul refuses to circumcise Titus because he declares that circumcision is nothing. It does not save you. So is Paul just a walking, talking contradiction? <laughs> is he just talking out both sides of his mouth? What is going on here? Well, no, I don't think that he is. I think Paul is actually a versatile evangelist. He's sensitive to his context. Paul knows that circumcision was one of the defining markers of being a Jew. For Timothy to have a Jewish mother and not be circumcised, the Jews would have seen him as an apostate Jew in that region. They were not going to listen to the gospel if they knew that Timothy had not been circumcised. Timothy's uncircumcision would have distracted the Jews in that region from hearing the gospel. Acts 15 declared that circumcision is not required for salvation. And neither is uncircumcision. In fact, circumcision is a matter of freedom and not salvation. And so Paul and Timothy, they adapt to their context. And we see Paul's strategy in 1 Corinthians chapter 9. Listen to these words. I have become all things to all people, that by all means I might save some. I do it all for the sake of the gospel. To those under the law, I became as one under the law, that I might win those under the law. In one context, Paul refuses to circumcise Titus because Titus was a Greek. To do so would have undermined the gospel that he proclaimed. No sense in circumcising him. In another context, he circumcises Timothy because his mother was Jewish. He did so not for the sake of salvation. He did so for the sake of the mission. With Titus's context, he defends the gospel. In Timothy's context, he does not want to distract people from hearing the gospel. Paul knows how to adapt to the culture without assimilating to it. He's willing to adapt so long as it's not sin. 
He doesn't become a drunk to the drunks or a bigot to the bigots. He's not doing that, right? Instead, he adapts. And he does so not to be cool. He does so to be clear with the gospel. He accommodates, but he does not assimilate. He can be flexible because he operates from the reality of his freedom in Christ. And he holds his Jewishness loosely because of the gospel. And brothers and sisters, so must we. The world loves, loves to identify people according to their gender, their ethnicity, their social class, or political affiliation. But the Christian's identity is first and foremost found in Jesus Christ. This allows for us to be able to sacrifice cultural preferences and differences in order to remove barriers to the gospel that the world actually erects in its place. It helps us to remove barriers to the gospel and evangelism. The gospel actually enables us to engage all people, even those in the world who are different from us politically, socially, ethically. And as we do, we need to know and we need to understand our audience. Decades ago, people would come to the theological table furnished with an understanding of God. That is not the case anymore. No longer can we assume a general understanding of God as creator. The Bible is an authoritative word, the reality of heaven and hell. In today's context, that is not the case. In Fayetteville alone, you've got people all over their map, all over the map in their conception of God. You just go drive around Wilson Park, you'll see Buddhist prayer flags. You walk around campus, you're going to meet students with an increasingly, who are increasingly claiming no religious affiliation. They're not coming from some religious background. To adapt to our context so as not to distract from the gospel, we've got to get better at asking questions of those that we're ministering to. We need to ask what existing categories that our neighbor, our coworker, our classmate is coming to the table with. What are those categories? What cultural assumptions are they making about such things? What categories do we need to actually create for them from the scriptures? So, for example, if a non-Christian mother disbelieves God because of her pain in losing a child, well, then we've learned something about her conception of God and suffering. That God is either not good for allowing suffering or not powerful enough to overcome it. But the way that we help to overturn those cultural assumptions about God and suffering is by sympathizing with her as a fellow sufferer by sympathizing with her as a fellow sufferer. We begin by using ways in which God has shown mercy to us in suffering so that we could actually show mercy to her and give comfort to her in her suffering. And then over time, we begin to create a new category of God in suffering based upon the scriptures that actually proves God's existence. It proves his power and his goodness through suffering. That's not going to happen overnight. That's going to take time. It's going to take a lot of different conversations that we have to have with them, but we've got to enter into that suffering with them, knowing that suffering does not disprove God's existence, his goodness, or his power. It actually is proof of it. That's going to take time. And yet in these ways, we become more effective in our mission. And what happens is a result of it. We saw the same thing in, in the first point. Look at verse 5. 
What happens as a result of this? So the churches were strengthened in the faith and they increased in numbers daily. Adapting to your context does not undermine the spread of the gospel. It actually advances it. It advances it. Because it doesn't make the gospel cool, it makes the gospel clear. And that's what we're aiming for. We want it to be clear. So brothers and sisters, persevere through disagreement, adapt to potential distractions in our context, all the while trusting in the Lord's direction. Last point, final thing that I want us to see, chapter 16, verses 6 to 10. Trust in the Lord's direction. As Paul continues on his journey through the region of Phrygia and Galatia, we're met with an unusual event, an unusual event. Luke tells us in verse 6 that the Holy Spirit forbids them to speak the word in Asia as they're traveling through. And then again, in verse 7, if you look there, it says that when they had come up to Mycenae, they attempted to go into Bithynia, but the Spirit of Jesus did not allow them. Now Luke does not tell us how they knew this, nor does he tell us why the Spirit actually did this. But what we see is that Jesus is the Lord of the mission, and he is still directing that mission through his people in the power of the Holy Spirit. This mission is not finally dependent upon man's well-made plans, man's well-made desires, but upon the Lord's will and direction. We saw this with Paul and Barnabas, right? Planning to go together. But what happened? That didn't work out. We see it with the Spirit forbidding them to preach in certain places. And we see it in verse 9 with Paul receiving a vision in the night of a Macedonian man pleading with them to cross over to Macedonia and to help us. And then in verse 10, we read that God had called us to preach the gospel to them. At the end of the day, our triune God writes the itinerary to the mission. He writes the itinerary to the mission. No matter how much that we strategize and we plan, all those well-made plans are subject to the hand of the Lord. We can lay out our strategy, we can plan to reach these people in this place in this many years, but at the end of the day, that's up to God. That's up to the Lord and his own timing in that, his own direction in that. And as he's done here, he may actually redirect where, who, and how you minister to others in Fayetteville and beyond by closing some doors and opening up other doors. Now, God opening and closing a door is not a license just to be lazy. Well, God will just open and close the door for me. Nor is it God's, God's blessing on a bad idea, right? After all, Jonah, he had an available ship to Tarshish, but that clearly was not God's open door for Jonah. That was disobedience is what that was. But as we're living faithfully to God's word, one way that we learn his will is by those doors that he closes and opens. Doors that at times can be frustrating, inconvenient, and painful when opened or closed. We've all experienced this. Right? Many of us are actually experiencing this right now. Whether it was a trip that you were hoping to take only to get it canceled, a conversation that you were hoping to have with another coworker about Christ that ended up getting shut down. 
Maybe it was a plan to have a child that never came about or the hope that a relationship would actually thrive that never came to fruition and didn't. Those moments can be extremely difficult. Yet in God's kindness, it's often in these moments that we learn greater trust and greater dependence upon him. It's often through pain that God actually prepares praise. I mean, just go look at chapter 16. (laughs) This is fascinating. In the context, what happens in chapter 16? You're not going to go here. Instead, you're going here. Next passage. The Lord opens up Lydia's heart in Philippi. That's not a coincidence. That's there for a reason. It's there for a reason. Brothers and sisters, we trust God by continuing to obey his word, knowing that he may close doors until the right opportunity comes. And though his plan may not look how you envisioned it, you can trust that God is executing that very good plan, all for your good and for his glory. He is. And let Paul and Barnabas' lives and this journey even just be a reminder to you of God's goodness in that. As Pastor G. Campbell Morgan once said, it is better to go to Troas with God than anywhere else without God. (laughs) It is better to go to Troas with God than anywhere else without him. Friends, Christ knew what it meant to submit to the Father's will, even to the point of death on a cross for our sin. And though his suffering brought pain for a moment, God's purpose through that pain brought what? It brought praise for people from every tongue, tribe, and nation for eternity. And in those moments when you're asking why, I want you to remember who. I want you to remember who. The Lord is good. The Lord is powerful. And his plan for us is always for our good and for his glory, even whenever it is inconvenient and when it's uncomfortable and when it's hard to see. This mission is going to bring trials. That's inevitable. And yet we must trust and obey the Lord's direction. Though you may feel pain now, God has prepared much praise for you through that pain. Now, if you're not a follower of Christ, and you ended up here this morning out of all Sundays, hey, praise God that you're here. Praise God that someone brought you so that you could hear this message. And friend, I want to encourage you. Have you actually considered that God directs where the gospel goes and who hears that gospel? Have you considered that as you're seeing right here in this final passage? God directs where the gospel goes. He directs who hears the gospel. Have you considered that to actually be the case for you right now? God has you here, hearing his gospel. Friend, don't turn away from what God has ordained for you to hear this morning. All of us, yourself included, are sinners in need of God's grace. We all make self-serving plans for our lives without acknowledging God's sovereignty over them. We all do this. We all do it. And rather than submitting to God and giving him the glory that he's due, we've sought to live according to our own sinful desires. And because of this rebellion, we deserve eternal condemnation. 
But praise God that in his mercy, he sent his son to pay the penalty for our sin. Through Jesus' death and his resurrection, sin and death have been overcome. And friend, guess what? God has flung open the door of salvation for anyone who would turn from their sin and trust in Christ as their Lord and Savior. Anyone who does that receives forgiveness of sins and eternal life. Friend, have you considered that God has you here to hear this message? Friend, turn from your sin. Don't turn from the gospel. Turn from your sin toward Christ in trust. Trust in him. That he is the only one who can give you a life that you have always been longing for and yet never will receive by pursuing it from the things of this world. Repent of your sin and trust in him for the salvation that he can only earn for you and that you can't earn for yourself. Well, friends, what setbacks, what obstacles have you faced recently in your life? What obstacles are you facing? Are any of them threatening to divert you from the mission? Threatening to divert you from walking in a manner worthy of God? What might some of those be? Remember that those setbacks may come were to persevere despite disagreement, were to adapt to potential distractions, and we need to trust in the Lord's direction. Will you do that? Let's pray. Father, we give praise to you that though at times we look at our lives and they may not go exactly how we thought that they were going to go, Lord, we know that your plan is not disrupted. Though it may disrupt our lives according to our own plans, Lord, we know that your plan is not disrupted. And Lord, we pray that you would remind us to look to Christ, to continue to persevere in living in a manner worthy of the gospel, continuing to persevere in trusting in you, in living in obedience to your word, even when distractions may come, even when disagreements, sadly, will happen between brothers and sisters in Christ. Lord, we pray that in all of this, we would continue to look to Christ, who for the joy set before him, endured the shame of the cross and won salvation for all who would turn to him in faith. Lord, we ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.